Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. Thanks for joining us again. The playoff is set. We're still talking, and we're going to get to the matchups, right, as we get closer in the next couple weeks to the playoff ahead. We're going to dig in hard on those. We're going to dedicate entire podcasts to the two individual matchups between Cincinnati and Alabama and Michigan and Georgia. But, Shahan, we're going to do something today that I think is is something that maybe sports fans like more than anything else, the two things they like the most, which is we're going to admit where we were wrong, and they love sports writers and podcasters being wrong, justifiably so. And we're going to be negative. Well, we'll mix in some positivity at the end. But we are going to do our five biggest playoff disappointments to start the show, and then we'll do our five biggest playoff pleasant surprises and then in the course of it we'll make sure we tell everybody who each of us picked to make the playoff at the beginning of the year where we were right where we were wrong but we have to start with the disappointments because that's where the juice is baby we gotta start ripping some people everybody always tweets at me like well if you get your thing wrong nobody ever holds you accountable that's not true we absolutely hold ourselves accountable if you don't believe that we hold ourselves accountable this is the podcast for you Shahan is here to make me cry about my picks by the end of the show. <laughs> oh, there's there's one we're going to talk about, don't you worry. There is one we are going to talk. But again, I'm just going to blame the, the coaches of the teams that I picked that didn't make it. It's not my fault. It's their fault. And we're going to start with number one. We're not going to do the reverse thing because we want to get to the juice first. What is your number one? And the way I thought of this, Shahan, was when it comes to – who we talked about in the playoff this year and who we didn't talk about, right? That it really is a small group because if we thought you were going to be the 19th best team in the country and you went, you went three and nine, it's like, well, I mean, that's like a general disappointment, but that's not really related to the playoff. You know what I mean? So you can say Washington. That's okay. No, I know. I know. I, <laughs> I mean, for real. What a, what a guy we have on podcasts who we'll eventually have on this show, Tyler Shoemaker, who's really smart. That, I know he liked Washington. I know Phil Steele, who I respect a great deal. Those are two of the people I respect most in college football, and they both really liked Washington. And here we are at the end of the year with a new coach and a bad season. So stuff can get off the rails. But it's really interesting. I think there were a lot of people. That was a week two Washington-Michigan matchup the same day as Ohio State-Oregon. And I think – People thought that Michigan-Washington matchup was really about Washington establishing something. And it turned out it was the exact opposite, that there was a playoff team in that game. And and it was the Michigan Wolverines. So who was your – so it's not Washington. Not Washington. I like Tyler, who I think is so smart. It's like I mentioned him on the podcast for the first time. I'm like, here's the thing where he was wrong. I'm wrong a thousand times a year. He's wrong once a year. But he hit a lot of other stuff this year. We'll have him on. He's smart. Who's uh, who's your number one disappointment, John? Well, there is a team that both of us picked to win the national championship. And by December 7th, they don't even have a head coach still with the program. And that's the Oklahoma Sooners. Now, heading into the year, uh, you know, and a lot of these are tied. I don't know how, if we want to treat Spencer Rattler as his own disappointment, if we want to treat the defense as its own disappointment, anything like that. But is your whole top five related to Oklahoma? <laughs> they're not all. Trust me. There was a lot that was weird this year. But Oklahoma, to me, is one of the biggest disappointments on the board. I'm not saying that they're the biggest, biggest disappointment because, well, again, we'll get to some more. But uh, but for Oklahoma to go and lose 
convincingly to the two biggest rivals to get into the Big 12 title game in a year that you really felt like this was the year in a lot of ways. I mean, that's that's a failure. That's a failure. You know, I, I mean, to go on the road and lose by 13 points against Baylor and then to lose Bedlam for the first time since 2014. I mean, that's that's not good enough. The reason that we were so excited about this team was because they had so much coming back on the defensive side of the ball. And you kind of figured that they'd be able to figure some stuff out on the offensive side of the ball. The offensive line just never really came together for all the excitement about a quarterback change against Texas, who went five and seven and against Texas Tech, who has one of the, the bad defenses in the Big 12. It didn't matter in the biggest moments, right? It didn't matter who was playing quarterback against Baylor or Oklahoma State. And for them to lose so convincingly in these two critical games and then lose their coach after the year, it's it's hard to imagine that this season could have gone any worse for the Oklahoma Sooners. That is also my number one. But I would like to specifically make it about Lincoln Riley and not have this be a Spencer Rattler conversation because Spencer Rattler's disappointing season is a byproduct, I think, of Lincoln Riley. Sure. And for Lincoln Riley, and I want this will give us an opportunity that we are in agreement here on number one because we both picked out Oklahoma to win the national title and they didn't make the playoff. But the other thing they did is they made us talk about them all year in a way that was like, well, they kind of stink, don't they? Don't they stink? They really we wasted a lot of breath on Oklahoma. And I the fans of Oklahoma I think we're probably put through a ringer. For instance, Clemson, and we may get to Clemson, two, three, four, five on this list. Clemson loses the opener to Georgia. Turns out Georgia's really good, but it's like a weird game. Nobody can score. And then Clemson kind of immediately made it apparent that this was not Clemson's year. And then actually by the end of the year, it's like, well, you know, they're in the top 20. They didn't completely fall off a cliff. They went nine and three. They they at least like they weren't tricking their fans. No, <laughs> they they set the tone early, which which almost is better. Oklahoma tricked them, tricked them, tricked them, tricked them, tricked them, tricked them. You want you, you were doubting them, but you didn't want to completely bail on them. And then it was like, oh no 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 no, you should have bailed on them because then Lincoln Riley bailed on Oklahoma. <laughs> well, and the other part about it too is that they went eight and zero for the first time since 2004, right? They have not started the season with that many wins in a row. And we talked about, I mean, the the committee ranked them number eight in their first rankings uh, because they didn't really believe in them. And Oklahoma fans were pissed because they're like, well, we're undefeated. What do you want us to do? Well, there you go. So what? this is a good, this is good because it's going to allow us to do two things. It's going to allow us to have sort of a Lincoln-Riley wrap-up conversation on the status of his career. And we want to talk about Brent Venables a little bit because he is the coach now of the Oklahoma Sooners. And this team is going in a different direction. Is Lincoln Riley's career at Oklahoma a disappointment? Five years, 55 and 10, made the playoff a bunch, never won a playoff game. Went eight and one, eight and one, eight and one, six and two, seven and two in the big 12. Lost two games every year. And again, a lot of those second losses were in the playoff. He never had the complete breakthrough year that he was supposed to be sort of like a step up from Bob Stoops, who obviously was ridiculously successful at Oklahoma, won a national title in year two. Lincoln Riley didn't win a national title. He goes out with his worst season. What's the final vibe on the Lincoln Riley Oklahoma era? 
It's absolutely not a disappointment. It left some to be desired. I, I think that that's probably the fairest way to say it, right? Because this is a program that's won seven national titles. It isn't a, a program that in almost every era has competed for national titles. And Oklahoma didn't, right? I mean, they just didn't. And, uh, I think that it's, I think it's somewhat understandable, right? There's going to be a lot of coaches that we look back at this 2010s era, even, even the end of Bob Stoops, right? And you're just kind of like, well, Alabama was there and they ate up a lot of the titles and, and a lot of teams couldn't beat them. Um, you know, so when it comes to Oklahoma and Lake Riley, I think that the biggest thing you say is that Oklahoma is a top five program in the nation. And I don't think it's particularly close. I think he leaves a job in a really good position. I think he permanently elevated the job above the rest of the big 12 in a way that like, I think Ryan Day has done a similar thing at, uh, in the big 10, generally speaking, obviously this year is not the case, but, I do think that the Lincoln Riley era at Oklahoma was a success. And I think that's also why it hurt so bad that he left is because it was a success. And you know that there was an another level that he had the potential to get to that he just didn't. But did he elevate Oklahoma really any higher than the Bob Stoops era? Bob Stoops, Oklahoma finished in the top five, five of his final nine years. He had like two quarters sort of down blips. But other than that, like they were right there every year. And and again, Oklahoma, like this playoff era, okay, so they made the final four, but they were never actually, other than the, the overtime loss to Georgia when they should have went to the national title game with Baker Mayfield, that was their one shot. They were not that close. Lincoln Riley was never really like right there to winning a national title. They were in the conversation, but they were in the back end of the conversation. And I'm not so sure Oklahoma's really any different than where they were with Bob Stoops. And and I'm not saying that's a disappointment. It's, it's not like he drove the program into, into the ground. But I thought in the end, he sort of kept it on cruise control with, and here's what I used to think this, when you get your car detailed, I always thought, you know, you get your car detailed. It mostly means they vacuum it, right? As it turns out. I always thought if you went to get your car detailed, it was it meant that they put like flames on the side of your car. Like I'm going to get some <laughs> details on my car, right? Are you, like you're getting your car detailed. It's like, Oh, are you getting a lightning bolt? <laughs> a racing stripe? Yeah. Yeah. What are you getting? And it's like, um, they're going to like, they're going to put some Windex on it and vacuum the seats. It's like, what? I thought you said you were getting it detailed, man. So I think Lincoln Riley detailed Oklahoma <laughs> in my version of it. It's really the same car. He just, put some flames on the side of it. But now that he's gone, it's like, okay, well, it was a really good car when he got here and it's the same car. And now Brent Venables is like, actually, I'm going to maybe like peel these flames off. So, <laughs> but it's the same car. So, so here's, here's where I'll push back, right? Is that um, in 2008, Bob Stoops takes Oklahoma to the national title game. They finished number five in the country, right? In the seasons after that, they go unranked, number six, number 16, number 15, number six, unranked. So Bob Stoops is still here, but this is where they hire Lincoln Riley to be offensive coordinator. They immediately go five, five, three, four, then seven, six, and then, you know, this one will probably be their first one outside of the top 10. So Lincoln Riley, after he arrived as offensive coordinator, did not have a season until this year outside of the top 10. Right. Bob Stoops had two of those and two unranked seasons over that period before. So I think that the bigger thing that you say is that because because Bob Stoops won a title in 2000 in a very obviously weird game, 13 to two over Florida State. Um, I think that Lincoln Riley took Oklahoma back to where 
Oklahoma was in the early Bob Stoops era. I, I, I think that, which I think you could make the argument they were in a similar boat where they were really, really good, but not actually a legitimate championship team most years. And so, you know, they did play in two national championship games. I think that certainly you can argue in some years, if we have a BCS type system, maybe Oklahoma's in a national title game that they lose anyway, right? But I, you know, so I think that he took it back to where they were in some of their earlier days because the late Bob Stoops years were not the early Bob Stoops years. And so I think that he did take them back to being a little bit more in that conversation relatively permanently. Let, let me ask you this. But I would agree, and I think it's smart to say that Lincoln Riley gets a decent chunk of credit for the last two years of Bob Stoops. Is it maybe in the final analysis that the best version of Oklahoma was Bob Stoops as the head coach and Lincoln Riley as the offensive coordinator? I, I think so, because I think that the big thing, and this is something that I'm very curious to see at, uh, I, I th- this is something I'm very curious to see at USC is that I think that your program tends to take on the personality of your head coach in a lot of ways and, and take on the priority of your head coach in a lot of ways. Right. And so, for example, I mean, I, I just covered the big 12 title game and, uh, you know, Dave Aranda's thoughtful and like focused and he's reading and reacting and responding. Right. And I think that you see a team that does that. Ryan Day, very stoic and confident and poised. And I think that Ohio State's generally been a team that's done that. I think that, I think that Lincoln Riley is so like innovative and offensive minded that sometimes it can permeate your whole team, right? That, that this is a team built about offense, that if you're coming here, you're coming here to play offense. I think we saw that with Cliff Kingsbury too at Texas Tech, where it's just when you're so focused on offense sometimes, I think that it permeates the culture of your whole team. Well, with Bob Stoops at the helm, you almost have that like physical defensive mindset leading the program. But with the offensive innovation as well. So that's something I'm really curious to see. You know, we've heard some rumored names for Oklahoma's new offensive coordinator, guys like Jeff Levy from Ole Miss. Uh, we've heard, you know, potentially Joe Brady from the Carolina Panthers and LSU, right? So they're trying to be dynamic offensively, but with a hard nosed defensive head coach, I think that that mix is actually going to potentially work really well if they get the right guy offensively to replace them. It is a fascinating conversation with the way football has evolved. I think. I think Ryan Day is in a similar – listen, I mean, Lincoln Riley is really good. Ryan Day is in a similar conversation at the moment for Ohio State. P- play caller, nobody disputes that, but now it's tough loss. They got to bounce back, and it's like Urban Meyer had a way of doing things. Maybe not everybody loved it all the time. He pushed you past your comfort zone. He rode you hard. Like it was – it's really hard to work for and play for Urban Meyer, but I think the track record is like – In the midst of that, it brings out the best of you, right? That Bob Stoops. And so the dichotomy of this a little bit is that we're in an era where smart play, smart offensive play callers are what everybody wants. We see smart offensive play callers when their offensive coordinators can reinvigorate established head coaches. Ryan Day did it for Urban Meyer. Lincoln Riley did it for Bob Stoops. That are the two biggest examples. You then want to make those offensive play callers head coaches. I do think it makes a lot of sense this day and age to hire an offensive coach because if you hire a defensive coach, so much of success is predicated on your offensive system and what you run and how you call it. And if you have a really good offensive system that the head coach is not calling, then that guy's going to leave when he's good. And then you're going to have to reinvent yourself in the most important part of the game. And it's like, well, Lincoln Riley's offense is never going to leave Lincoln Riley. So you hire him as the head coach. Same with Ryan Day. If you, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah. 
But then is that a guarantee that leadership, motivation, culture, hard decisions, building a structure, all those things that go into being a head coach? Is it a guarantee that just because you're an offensive play caller, you're good at those things? And there can be a point where you've I think this day and age, I think you have to have the offensive ingenuity. It's a must, whether it's from the head coach or from a smart hire like Coach O did with Joe Brady. But then Joe Brady left and Coach O fell off a cliff, right? So that's – but you also – it's not a guarantee to get the other thing. And in, and sometimes in saying, well, we've got to have the offensive stuff, maybe it's like, well, we'll deal with if Lincoln Riley didn't batten down the hatches in a way that made Oklahoma, which had a lot of talent, just play better this year. He didn't lead them in a way that made them maximize their potential. He didn't. He did not lead Spencer Rattler in a way that allowed Spencer Rattler to maximize his potential. He didn't. And I don't think it was the system. It was just something happened. And Lincoln Riley didn't coach him out of it. So that's where we are. I'm not doubting Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day long term. But this, what happened at Oklahoma, almost gave me a little more appreciation for Bob Stoops, even though it took Lincoln Riley to reinvigorate Bob Stoops. It's a a lot of weird connections. Yeah, no, and, and I think final word on this. I, I think that what you should be looking for at it as an organization is you should be looking to have somebody who's a mainstay on both sides. Because, for example, we see at Clemson for so long, Davis Winnie came from the offensive side of the ball. Tony Elliott's been there a long time. But on defense, you've got Brent Venables. And so you've got a guy who almost is a head coach on the defensive side of the ball historically who really sets the tone on that side. And and there's never a question of whether there's enough attention paid or whether you're kind of a second-class citizen on your own team, right? And I think that that kind of uh, – and, and maybe that's what Ryan Day was trying with Kerry Combs, right? Somebody who has been in the organization who potentially, if it works, is a five, ten-year defensive coordinator who's happy to be there, right? But it is hard, of course, because because Nick Saban kind of does that the other way where he's the defensive guy in a lot of ways – and offensively, he hires these guys and he kind of has the system, but it means that every guy's getting hired as a head coach, like you mentioned. So I think that the most stable place for a program to be is to have a head coach who does one thing and then have a somebody who's just there who you pay $3 million a year on the other side of the ball just to kind of keep things going. So it's a tough battle. It's always going to be hard because people are always want to going to want to hire good staffers to better position. Um, but that's kind of the eternal struggle. And I think that's also the thing that Nick Saban has done best is that again, he's really able to control that defensive side of the ball and the overall team culture. But like you have enough of like a built in playbook, built in terminology. You kind of have a way that you do things on the offensive side of the ball that you're kind of just telling Bill O'Brien, Hey man, just call the plays in some order. I absolutely still have a story. I don't know that I ever wrote it. I have a lot of stories I never wrote about Kerry Combs. Is he Ohio State's Brent Venables from the moment he got here? And then the answer was no. But you look at when you have it, it's so valuable. Brent Venables, 10 years as a defensive coordinator at Clemson. Luke Fickle, 11 years as a co-defensive coordinator at Ohio State. Kirby Smart, eight years as a defensive coordinator at Alabama. Those guys could wait because they knew they weren't going to jump unless it was for a great job. And look what they ended up jumping for. They jumped for Georgia, Cincinnati, and Oklahoma. Let's make this our Brent Venables conversation. Brent Venables is like the new Bob Stoops. So now he's got to find his Lincoln Riley. But it happens in every sport. You end up going the opposite of what you had before. Players coach to tough guy, tough guy to players coach, offense to defense, defense to offense. 
Venables just fit in every way with his Oklahoma connections, with his Big 12 background. So even if Brent Venables was an offensive coordinator, he would have been the hire. But as it turns out, he's 180 degrees from Lincoln Riley. Is this is this Bob Stoops era part two? And it feels like to me, this is the right hire. It's a smart hire and it should work. It's just going to be completely different. And he's got to go find his offense coordinator. Yeah, and I think that what they're hoping in a lot of ways is that they're bringing in Bob Stoops circa 2015, right? I mean, that they're bringing in a Bob Stoops who has perspective of the game because the thing that's crazy, I, I did, I knew that Brent Venable is obviously great defensive coordinator that he's been part of winners. I did not realize that he's been a part of like every winner over the past 20 years. Like he is, as soon as he goes somewhere, they become superstars. He was a, a linebacker's coach at Kansas State back in 98 when they were competing for a national title game. He went to Oklahoma in his second season. They won a national championship. He goes to Clemson and, and is ultimately, in a lot of ways, the guy who turns them from a really good program into a national championship program. So, I mean, like, he's the guy, right? Like, it was always a no-brainer. I think that's... Uh, even from the moment that Lincoln Riley left it, it felt like Brent Venables was going to be that guy. And so I think that the hope is right, that he does have that perspective. He coached on the other side of Mike Leach during some of those early Oklahoma years. He coached on the other side of Josh Heupel and Jay Norvell, who both ran high paced offenses. Uh, he coached on the other side of Tony Elliott and uh, the, the coach down at South Jeff Florida, Scott. Jeff Scott, Jeff Scott. And, uh, you know, and they ran a dynamic offense. He's coached on the other side of great quarterbacks before. He's not going to be afraid of that, right? He's not going to try to slow down the game and play bully ball and whatever, you know, and, and nickel and dime your way to wins. I think he understands what Bob Stoops came to understand in 2015, that you need to be able to do both. And I think that's why I think he probably has the potential to be a really good hire for them. That's our biggest disappointment. We're going to transition a little bit with from Brett Venables to my number two disappointment next on the College Football Survivor Show. In case you missed the last College Football Survivor Show. I think that I am still in favor of the 12 team in practice. If Georgia is suddenly vulnerable, and it might just be that they're vulnerable to Alabama, if maybe some of these teams aren't as good as we thought they were, do we see more upsets than we think that we will? I, I think that this is a year where people will make the case nobody's good. And I think the case when nobody's good is a great time to just let people play it out. My case would be nobody's good for is enough. Notre Dame is five. I mean, everyone loves Marcus Freeman. I love Marcus Freeman. He should. Yeah. He had his introductory news conference on Monday. I was going to go and then I kind of didn't have time. The story on Twitter was Marcus Freeman's incredible fade and everybody was like, where do you get that in South Bend? And it turns out that the great team over at the South Bend Tribune had actually written about the barber who does most of Notre Dame's fades. I imagine that the hair in Notre Dame, it's more of a Pete Buttigieg town than a Marcus <laughs> Freeman type town. So uh, it's good to know that they have some resources there. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for exclusive College Survivor Show bonus episodes. Doug and Shahan, we invite you to try the Tuesday pod. That is for Apple podcast subscribers only. It's $2.99 a month. We did what a 12-team playoff would have looked like this year and would it have been better or worse than the 14-team playoff we actually have. We discussed that on the Tuesday pod. Again, only for Apple podcast subscribers. Stick your thumb on there and it costs as much as a half a Starbucks. Clemson's my number two on my list of disappointments. But again, as I sort of said before, at least they kind of got out of the way because they lose the opener to Georgia. They beat Georgia Tech 14-8 in week three in a game they wanted to lose. And then they do lose to NC State the next week. And then three weeks later, they lose to Pitt. 
But then they finish the season on a five-game winning streak, and the two games at the end, they blow the doors off Wake, which Wake Forest was a was a great story all year, and then they shut out their rival South Carolina thirty to nothing at the end. If this was just like a reset year for Clemson, I get it. I did not pick Clemson to make the playoff. I thought maybe they were headed to something like this. But the reason that it is still number two on my disappointment list is because of what they were. But also, Shahan, losing Brent Venables, he's been the most important assistant coach in college football for the last decade. And the fact that their five-star quarterback did not develop this way. There were three second-year five-star quarterbacks in C.J. Stroud, Bryce Young, and D.J. Uyunglele. You kind of wondered, will all three hit? And the answer was no. Two of the three will hit. Two of the three are going to New York, and Clemson had a bad year. They have major questions on both sides of the ball, and there certainly will be discussion amplified by Venable's departure about whether this is a line in the sand and is this the end of this era of this kind of Clemson dominance because certainly Clemson does not have a birthright to being one of the two best programs in college football step for step with Alabama. And this could go away. And that is, I think, going to be maybe the number one conversation of the offseason once this coaching carousel ends, because we're not sure who they are right now. Well, I, I think that Clemson as a whole for sure is one, but I'll ask you. So there were 15 quarterbacks in the ACC that qualified in terms of amount of throws for statistics. Can you guess out of 15 quarterbacks where DJ Uyunglele ranked in terms of passer efficiency? Now let's say let's say this. There were actually some pretty darn good quarterbacks in the oh, ACC totally, this year. Totally. Right? Kenny Pickett at Pitt, Sam Howell at North Carolina, Phil Jerkovich at, P- at uh, Boston College before he got hurt. Yeah, who did not qualify, by the way. He did, he did not qualify. Sam Hartman at Wake Forest. Brennan so, Armstrong at Virginia, great player. Lot of lot of guys. Uh seventh? Fifteenth. He was last. He, so, so you talk about there being some good quarterbacks in the, in the, the ACC. I think that the ACC probably had the best collection of quarterbacks of any conference in the country. Guys who I would not have, uh, considered to be in that conversation. Garrett Schrader at Syracuse. Uh, Dennis Grissel at Boston College. Uh, Gunnar Holmberg at Duke. He's behind all those guys. He, he had a 108.7 passer efficiency. That feels impossible for the quarterback at Clemson University, who is the former number one quarterback recruit in the entire country. I, I don't understand the math. I don't understand how that's physically possible. I don't, I, I'm not even saying that like he had to be awesome. I'm not saying he had to be first. There was probably no scenario where he was going to rank ahead of Kenny Pickett and Tyler Van Dyke. Devin Leary at NC State had a fantastic season. Like this is the best collection of quarterbacks out of any conference in the country this year. Last is something completely different. So DJ is specifically on your list, not just Clemson. Specifically DJ. I think that he is because the defense was awesome. The defense was, I'm not saying it's their best unit ever, but like it is, it is up there with some of the best units that we've seen despite suffering some injuries. Like they were very, very impressive this year defensively. I mean, there's a reason that this game uh, against Georgia ended up being a 10-3 game and it was because their defense was that good. And even after they lose Brian Bersay, I they still keep rolling, right? I mean, you mentioned shutting out South Carolina, uh, having this big win over Wake where they totally shut down that offense. If they had the, the uh, again, there are 15 guys in the middle. If they have Jordan Travis from Florida State as their quarterback instead, they are top 10 right now. If they have 
Braxton Burmeister. I don't know. I, I mean, that's a crazy place to go, but like maybe, maybe they're a top 10 team, right? I, I think that the fact that Clemson was so bad this year rests almost solely on what their passing game could not do for them. And that's not all DJ's fault. Their receivers also struggled a whole lot and never really got on the same page. But it is hard to look at Clemson University, the team that the last couple of years had Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson and won national championships and say, holy crap, they had the 15th ranked quarterback in the ACC. You did. You mentioned Gunnar Holmberg earlier from Duke. I like to. Re- I call him the Swedish Stetson Bennett. Just so you know, <laughs> he is gonna. There's a Swiss. There's a Swiss bank. I know. I understand Switzerland and Sweden aren't the same country, but that guy is gonna tear it up in like the crypto market in Scandinavia in a couple years. We also didn't even mention Sam Howell, by the way, uh, on our list of great ACC quarterbacks. Who's also very good. Well, I picked Sam Howell to win the Heisman, so I'm gonna mention him. The. Uh, you talk about Clemson. You pick Clemson to make the playoff as your four seed. I pick Clemson to just miss. So once Clemson, when we both picked Clemson to lose to Georgia in the opener, so we were both right about that. We both thought they'd lose to Georgia and then maybe just be kind of like a little bit uncertain and be right on the edge of the playoff conversation rather than throwing themselves off a cliff by losing to NC State in week four. They wound up 19th in the final playoff rankings. Again, it's it's unusual anymore for the great, great programs to have a reset year, but sometimes it happens. I'll be curious to see if this was a reset year for Clemson or if this was sort of the end of an era. And they are recruiting at a really high level, right? They started recruiting even better at the end of this winning streak than they were at the beginning. So we'll see what happens. We also both had Oklahoma in the playoff. You had them as the two seed going into the season. I had them as as the four seed, but we both had Oklahoma winning the national title. So that's why we are have them this high on this list. So Oklahoma-related was number one of my disappointments. Clemson-related was two. You had both of those. What's another disappointment that you had? Texas A&M since 1998. They they won the conference, uh, the the Big 12 conference in 1998 uh, and won 10 games. They won 10 games during the Johnny Manziel year. And if it was a normal year last year, they probably would have won 10 games because of just the way with non-conference games that the schedule worked out. They went eight and one in the pandemic year. Yeah. That they, they just didn't get to play enough games. Yeah. That's a little unfair, but unfortunately it's still the case. They have won t- 10 games one time since 1998. And with their loss to LSU with the coach who was about to be fired, or actually was fired. Uh, and, and by the way, they, Texas A&M has the coach that LSU was bending over backwards to try and attract. They lose that game to finish eight and four, which means that they cannot win 10 games again. And, for a team that entered the year at, I believe, number seven in the AP poll, a team that you guys can't see it, we put them on the cover of our magazine uh, because of how good we thought that they had the potential to be. Just just unbelievable disappointment that they ended up just being a fifth-place SEC West team. I also had Texas A&M on my list. I had them fourth on my list. And it's that the win over Bama just made the disappointment greater. Yeah, that it was a tremendous night, but it showed you the potential of Texas A&M that they did not meet yeah. the rest of the season. And the, even even the Alabama win at the moment was a little disappointing because they were coming off losses to Arkansas and Mississippi State the two weeks before. And if they had just won one of those games, then the Bama win would have been something that set them up to maybe make the SEC championship game. And instead they beat Bama and it was like, well, it's already too late. 
because now you've got a route for Bama to lose again. And then well, what if some, so they wind up, they start off three and they lose 20 to 10 to Arkansas, 26, 22 to Mississippi state. They beat Bama. That starts a four game winning streak, Bama, Mizzou, South Carolina, Auburn. Then they lose to Ole Miss. They beat a Patsy in their second to last game. And then they lose to LSU. So they lose their last two SEC games. They they lose their first two SEC games and their last two SEC games. And in between, they win four straight, including beating Bama. This was not a good year for Jimbo because you could see the individual talent at a couple places was as good. I my God, could I talk more about Texas AM's backfield? And then they had they had difference makers on both sides of the line. I know you had questions about their receivers all year. We know they had the quarterback injury, but man, it's just that 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 they weren't more in the mix, right? Again, it's just, I do think being in the mix is success in itself because it gives your team hope all year. And even for instance, we talked about how frustrating it was for Oklahoma fans. At least they were in the discussion. Clemson was out of the discussion very quickly. Texas A&M beat Bama, but yet never was in the playoff discussion, Shahan, because they already had two losses by the time they did it and more losses were coming. It was, it's squandered. There's talent squandered, there's opportunity squandered, and I think it makes you look a little sideways at Jimbo Fisher of like, okay, well, you're like raising maybe the standard and the talent level, but dude, when are you going to get him over the top? Last year, you were kind of under the radar. In a weird pandemic year, not a lot of expectations. You finish fifth in the playoff rankings, and you can complain and say, we should have gotten in. And then it's like, all right, show it, and you go four and four in the SEC. That's not great, man. Yeah, and I think the other thing too, right, is uh, I, I think you make a, a comparison. Texas A&M and Michigan State are probably right now kind of comparable quality teams. But Michigan State took care of the things that they needed to take care of, right? This was not about ceiling. This was about floor. And Texas A&M had a drop off of a floor like we couldn't have imagined. And a lot of people are going to say, well, that's just because of our quarterback situation. Our starter got hurt. I mean, Haynes King threw three interceptions against Kent State. There's no guarantee that he would have been the savior that goes and wins the Heisman and takes you to 12 games. Like That's what it would have taken. It would have taken a fundamentally different type of football player to have completely transformed this season uh, when it comes to quarterback position. And, it's funny, right? I mean, I, I always, uh, I always go back to, uh, what I call the Jim McElwain corollary, which is if your team is good because of something that your head coach doesn't do, I have questions, right? Like that Florida team was awesome because their defense was awesome. And Jim McElwain was the offensive coordinator at Bama. Eventually his terrible offense has caught up to him. Now, Jimbo Fisher in a million different ways. It's not Jim McElwain. and his units have not been anywhere near that bad. And last year in 2020, they were a good unit, not a great unit. They, they certainly have underperformed basically in every way since he's taken over on offense, just in terms of production. But, you know, for them to be in a position where this is your guy, that Zach Calzada is the guy that you've got. And if you don't have Zach Calzada, you have walk on Blake boast and you're in year four of your program. I have some questions. All right, so we're in agreement on Texas A&M being on this list. They were my number four. My number three I combined, and I combined it as off-the-radar teams, sort of like mid-tier teams that we were thinking could make a jump who disappointed us for having any kind of faith in them. And I lumped North Carolina and Iowa State together here. North Carolina was number 10 in the AP preseason poll, went six and six. Iowa State was number seven in the AP preseason poll, went seven and five. And Iowa State was a team that I picked to make the playoff, uh, 
and they just kind of lost not every game because they did beat Oklahoma State, but they lost most games against decent teams. They lose to Iowa in week two. They lose to Baylor in week four. They lose to West Virginia. They lose to Texas Tech, inexplicable. On a 62-yard field goal, by the way. (laughs) On a 62-yard field goal, 41-38. They lose to Oklahoma in the second-last game of the season, 28-21. It's close, but they don't get over the hump. They do beat Texas. They do beat Oklahoma State. They beat Kansas State, but it just makes it harder. As much as Cincinnati, because it's a different kind of underdog. Cincinnati is an underdog based on their conference. North Carolina and Iowa State are underdogs based on their history within their Power Five conferences and their status as programs. And it's like, oh, well, they're not Oklahoma or Texas or Clemson or Florida State or Miami in terms of their program. But what's their ceiling when they're good? And then it's like, man, like the expectation game. I think the expectation game caught up with both of them. And it just makes it harder next time. I don't know. That you're trying to think, hey, this is actually like the eighth best program in this conference, but I like their talent. Maybe they'll win the conference this year. This year, it's like, no, they're not going to win the conference. Don't do it. So, <laughs> Oklahoma or UNC and Iowa State hurt my feelings, and they are tied for third on my list of disappointments. Yeah, it's funny because I think that they're similar cases but different cases. Because I think that North Carolina was just a disappointing team, right? Like, I just don't think that they were very good. They lost by 23 points to Georgia Tech. They lost by 10 points to a terrible Florida State team. And, like, with Iowa State, it was just... We talked about the margin of error, right? That was always going to be the thing, was that they have a small margin of error, but they're so good and they're so well-coached and they they execute so well that maybe it'll be enough. And we saw that small margin of error come back to bite them this year. You know, they lose by 10 to Iowa in a game that just was awful in every way. And honestly, I was out on Iowa State after that performance because if you can't mentally get over that hump, I, I don't know if you can, right? Then they lose by two to Baylor, seven to West Virginia, three to Texas Tech, and by seven to OU. Like, four excruciating losses that they all had a chance to win. And that's kind of Iowa State's lot in life in a lot of ways, right? I mean, last year, they win those close games. I think they win four games also by one score uh, to finish 9-1 and one or whatever it was. And so, I mean, it, it, it's brutal. I mean, that, that's kind of life as Iowa State right now. They're, they still haven't won 10 games in their history. Uh, you know, we really felt like this was a year that they had the potential to do that. The good news is Matt Campbell to this point has survived the coaching carousel, which I think is great for them. And I think he's going to continue to do big things there that apparently they're very excited about their back quarterback Hunter Deckers. But I mean, just in so many ways, right? This was the year. This was the year you have Oklahoma, not at Oklahoma levels. The two teams that play for a conference championship are Baylor and Oklahoma state. This was the year Iowa state and you blew it. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And they still, you know, you look at them, You never thought Brock Purdy was a world beater at quarterback. 18 touchdowns, seven interceptions, like just fine. But you knew Brees Hall was great, ran for 1,400 yards and 20 touchdowns. I liked Xavier Hutchinson a lot. I thought they didn't use him enough at times, but 82 receptions for 953 yards. And then you knew they were a defense first team. And I don't know, their defense didn't completely collapse, but it is a little bit of you have to be perfect. And it, I think one of the things is when you look at Iowa State, it helps reinforce how hard it was for Cincinnati to do what Cincinnati did. Because I thought Cincinnati and Iowa State, although in different conferences, were in very similar situations this year. And frankly, you know, the teams that Iowa State played and some of the teams they lost to, like they lost to Texas Tech. Well, Cincinnati beat Houston, right? You know, that that some of the teams 
Iowa State lost to were not that different than the teams that Cincinnati was playing in the American and getting criticized for only beating by eight points or 11 points, but they were winning. And Iowa State showed when you don't have overwhelming, overwhelming, overwhelming talent, you've got to do almost everything perfect almost every week. Oklahoma, Iowa State couldn't do it. Cincinnati did. So extra credit to the Bearcats. That was my number three. My number five is very personal. And it's only because they were good enough to make me disappointed. And it's what Ole Miss did against Alabama. (laughs) Because Ole Miss turns out to be a pretty darn good team. They're a legitimate top 10 team. They're playing in a New Year's Six game. And they come out and they lose the ball on downs, going forward on fourth down, the first two drives against Alabama. And that game's over. And they're down 28 nothing at the half. And then they score three touchdowns in the second half, but it's too late. And just the scenario in my mind of, What if they make those fourth downs, right? Bryce Young didn't go crazy in that game. Bama was vulnerable this year, and only one team got them, and now they're the one seed and the odds-on favorite to win the national title. And other people had chances. Auburn almost did it, but Ole Miss didn't almost do it. Florida got closer than Ole Miss did, but I still think there's a world where I can see a version of how Ole Miss could have won that game if they were at the best of themselves at the moments when they had to be, and they weren't. And it was a missed opportunity. So it's a missed opportunity, not for the season, but for that one game. And that's why I squeezed him in here at number five on my disappointment list. Yeah, I, I have a very, very similar one. I basically just am disappointed that nobody could be the second team to knock off Bama because we were we were this close. We were this close to having a playoff without our four uh, preseason teams, right? This close. And... If Tank Bigsby stays in bounds, then Alabama might not be playing for a national title. And, and actually, I mean, I, I thought about putting Georgia here just because, goodness sake, man, like, come on. You, you can't get just mentally destroyed like that. Now, Georgia's still in the playoffs, so I felt like that was a little unfair. And I mean, obviously the rest of the season, they were very impressive. And, and I think we're surprised in some ways how impressive they were, but, for goodness sake, to just get mentally fried by Bama like that. Like, again, I, I just don't think they're going to win now. I, I don't think that they can mentally get over the hump of knowing that they are just a worse team than Alabama, both physically and mentally. I mean, the one way for Georgia to get over the hump is to change who they are by benching their starting quarterback. But we've already <laughs> had that conversation. So we don't, and we're going to have it again and again and again and again. So I do. So we're, we're sort of in agreement on that, that like the opportunity, whoever had it to truly vanquish Bama. Because instead, you just knocked them down, and then Bama chumba wumba the rest of the world. They got <laughs> and back finished up. as the number one seed. <laughs> okay, yes, yes, but they finished as the number one seed, baby. After hey, all Kirby of that, smart. <laughs> Do you like? Can you see? I, for Ohio State, they always play the LL Cool J song, uh, like it's time for war, Michigan week. <laughs> Do you think Nick Saban's playing? I get knocked down. But I get up again because you're never going to keep like all like for a month. I I feel like I feel like he in good faith can't because they don't get knocked down again very often. So I don't know about all that. You know, you guys with your rat poison giving us the rat poison. (laughs) We just fight back with Chumbawamba. You thought that we were going to be the number two seed, you idiots. <laughs> we're the number one seed. Now, I want I want every Alabama player, every Alabama coach, every Alabama fan to listen very closely. Alabama is the overwhelming favorite. Everybody <laughs> believes in them. Everybody thinks they're going to win the national title. So if you 
go out there saying nobody believes in us. You are lying on national television. Kirby Smart's like, please doubt us. Please doubt <laughs> us. We don't know what to do when you think we're good. Please doubt Georgia. All right. Those are my disappointments. Lincoln Riley, Clemson, Iowa State slash North Carolina, Texas A&M, and Ole Miss not seizing the opportunity against Alabama. Is there anything that we have not covered that was on your disappointment list? The only other thing that we didn't mention was uh, just the way that Oregon finished the year. Uh, Not even just the losses to Utah. That's one thing. But like just... To, to show that you can play that well against talent and then not really play talent again the rest of the year and, and still completely collapse on yourself. I mean, I, I think that I'm in a position right now with Mario Cristobal where I know that he can build up the pieces, but for, for really, I mean, his entire tenure, I think you could argue they, they have not been good enough in a coaching football standpoint I think that Jim Moore had helped with some of that on the offensive side of the ball uh you know we saw that great game plan that they had against Ohio State but especially in Pac-12 play they just haven't looked like a well-coached football team in a lot of ways they look like a bunch of guys out there uh, who are super talented but I'm curious now right because uh Mario Cristobal did go on Oregon radio and did basically say like I'm so sorry. Like it's, this is a very specific situation, which I think we all believe with the university of Miami uh, and whoever comes in has three top 10 classes to build a PAC 12 contender out of. And I think that's true. I, I think that there is a chance that somebody comes in probably doesn't keep up the recruiting, but has a chance to maybe do more with it than what we saw from Mario Cristobal this year. Because I, I think on the field in a lot of ways, there were entries, there was context, but it was disappointing. So Kayvon Thibodeau has announced that he's going to skip the bowl game and go pro. He'll be a top five pick. But we have seen in the past there are opportunities for coaches who were really good recruiters who leave, who get like sort of a better football coach in right behind him. Jim Tressel won a national title at Ohio State in year two with some John Cooper players, also some Tressel stuff. Urban Meyer won a national title at Florida in year two with some Ron Zook players, supplemented by Urban Meyer players. Right? I think there's a, an extreme opportunity an extreme opportunity, maybe a Dave Aranda type coach that maybe is not going to recruit at the same level. Mario Cristobal recruited that long-term, but this crossover time is prime time. It's time for Oregon to go because they might get a better X and O game day structure win on Saturday's football coach while Mario Cristobal excelled at recruiting and you got to do both, but this is your best chance to have both. I actually have Oregon on my other list in a different way. So we're done with disappointments. We'll come back. We'll go through the pleasant surprises more quickly because no one likes to talk about good stuff. But we'll also talk about what officially our picks were and how many we got wrong and right for the playoff next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, Doug and Shahan, let's actually do our picks right now. Okay. In the end, we each got one playoff team. (laughs) So, and that's because neither of us put Bama in. And like my big play this year was no Bama, no Clemson. And I was feeling pretty good about that for a long time. My playoff was number one, Georgia. We predicted the seeds. Number one, Georgia. Number two, Ohio State. Number three, Iowa State. Number four, Oklahoma. So Georgia made it, Ohio State finished sixth, Iowa State wasn't ranked, and Oklahoma was 16 in the final playoff rankings. Shahan, you had number one Georgia, number two Oklahoma, number three Ohio State, and number four Clemson. So 
Your teams finished third, 16th, and 19th. You were closer than me. We had a, as part of our, in the preseason, if you guys didn't listen to the preseason, one of the things we did was we had discussions every week about, we started with the four playoff teams who have dominated the playoff, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson. I said, well, of course they're in the discussion. Who else should be in the discussion? And the last show before the season started where we made our picks was also the show where we discussed Cincinnati. And we both were very much in on Cincinnati could do it. We both thought they could both beat both Indiana and Notre Dame, which at that point were the two big games on their schedule. But we both just thought back-to-back years of regular season perfection just might be too much to ask. And there's just might be one loss waiting out there for them somewhere, and it's a loss they couldn't afford. But I also said something like, hey, show me a bunch of one-loss teams in an undefeated Cincinnati, and we will have an interesting playoff discussion. That's exactly what we got, and Cincinnati got in. So Shahan – Neither of us were willing to go over the edge with Cincinnati, but we both thought they were real. Hearing these were our picks, we only got one playoff team right. Where did we go wrong the most? Was there something that we were blind to in the preseason that ended up making us one for four? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, just putting myself and putting yourself back in the preseason mindset, right? I don't think that there were warning signs with Oklahoma. I I don't think that there were. I think that our thought process on it was sound. It ended up being completely wrong, right? But I don't know what we could have seen necessarily that would have been different. Uh, And the other thing that I'll mention too is that what happened between the preseason and the postseason one, I, I think that the thing that fundamentally shifted both of those was just two teams that have not won their rivalry game in seven and 10 years winning their rivalry game, right? If, if Ohio state and Oklahoma win those rivalry rivalry games against Oklahoma state and Michigan, then like all of a sudden our fields looks different, right? All of a sudden our fields does potentially look a little more like that credit to them for doing it. I mean, See, that's, those are teams. Michigan, I did not believe that you could beat Ohio State. You can tell me that I was wrong. Oklahoma State, I did not believe that you could beat Oklahoma. You can tell me that I was wrong. I'm pleasantly surprised. I mean, I thought that, that Cincinnati definitely had a chance to go 12 and 0. I just thought it wouldn't matter. So it, it kind of did, it, it kind of did work out in a nice way where Cincinnati at the end of the day was only being compared to the one loss team that they beat head to head convincingly on the road in Notre Dame and then all two loss teams. If we're in a scenario, for example, where Oklahoma State wins or if Baylor doesn't lose to TCU and they're one loss, we talked about it uh, on the show earlier this week. I'm, I'm less confident. I'm less confident that they would have been firmly in. I, I think that this would have been the scenario that I went for. I'm thrilled for them and I'm thrilled for the sport that it didn't work out that way. Um, and then the, the flip side of this is, Again, I don't think that we could have projected DJU to be the worst quarterback in the entire ACC. I don't think that, I, I don't know how we could have seen that coming. Um, you know, so again, credit to the teams for beating them, credit to the teams for, uh, for outperforming them, credit to NC State, credit to all of them. But like when I go back and look at the beginning of the year, if I don't have any of the context of the season, I don't know. I, I probably would have gone a similar direction again. No, I agree with that. Let's dive into our pleasant surprises then. You mentioned Oklahoma State. We'll do pleasant surprises in reverse. So we end with the most pleasant playoff surprise of the season. My number five is Oklahoma State. And that is based on the fact that when I watched Oklahoma State Tulsa, because Ohio State was getting ready to play Tulsa and Tulsa played Oklahoma State in a close game. And I was like, 
that to me did not indicate that Tulsa was good. It just, I thought it meant Oklahoma State was bad. And I was like, that team, what are you? I didn't like anything from either team that I saw in Tulsa, Oklahoma State. And that that team wound up absolutely in the heart of the playoff conversation down to the last weekend. That they are four inches short of being the most controversial part of the playoff discussion blows my mind. So it's not even where I thought Oklahoma State was in the preseason. It's where I thought Oklahoma State was a couple weeks into the season that they did what they did and had the season that they had is a credit primarily to their defense, but also to Mike Gundy, to Spencer Sanders, to everybody who just was good enough offensively to get it done. What a year for Oklahoma State. Yeah, I mean, I I had them on my list as well. And for me, the thought was basically, okay, cool. You survived non-conference play. Okay, cool. You survived your early season games. But, like, do you really think you're just going to hold everybody and, like, strangle them under a pillow? And the answer was yes. They did that <laughs> against everybody, including uh, the, the one of the teams that they lost to in the Big 12 title game. They suffocated Baylor for 40 minutes the other time they played, right? Like, they there were three defenses to me in college football that were head and shoulders above everybody else. There was Georgia. There was uh, there was Wisconsin. And then there was Oklahoma State. To me, these were the three best defenses in college football. They're three of the best defenses that we've ever seen, in my opinion. I'm really excited to to see Oklahoma State get a chance to play some other competition. I, I think they got Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl because this this is a special defense. I think there's going to be a lot of guys on this defense who do play in the NFL, and I think that uh, Malcolm Rodriguez should be in that conversation for one of the best defensive players in all of college football. Number four, I had a similar team in a lot of ways to Oklahoma State, and it's Michigan State. That Michigan State was in the discussion all year. We do the at, uh, at Cleveland.com, the Big Ten more than a decade ago abandoned doing a preseason poll of the people who cover Big Ten media days in the preseason. Every other conference does it. The Big 12, Pac-12, the SEC, the ACC, they all do it. It's like, hey, you get one a credential. Hey, vote who you think is going to win. What's the order of finish? We'll release that. The Big Ten is so worried about hurting people's feelings. They stopped doing it. They don't announce preseason players of the year, and they don't do any polling. So lame. It's so <laughs> lame. And then when I bring it up every year that they're afraid of hurting people's feelings, and then every now and then someone from the Big Ten will say, do you have to bring that up every year? It's like, yes, because it's big boy school, and I'm sorry that your coach cried that he was picked to finish seventh. But if you don't have preseason polls, you don't have any expectations to overcome. So at Cleveland.com, we do it. We <laughs> gather. We get votes from writers all around the Big Ten, at least one writer from every team that covers the Big Ten. And in our poll, which for a decade has been the unofficial official preseason <laughs> Big Ten poll, Michigan State was last in the East. And I bet Mel Tucker hung that up. And see, Big Ten, if you would poll, Mel Tucker would have stuff to hang up. But instead, it's up to us to give him stuff to hang up. They were last. They were behind Rutgers, man. Well behind <laughs> Maryland and Rutgers. Devastatingly last. No doubt about it, last. They go 10-2. and two, And beyond that, they are in a discussion. They create one of the great controversies of the playoff committee this season, which is the playoff committee wanting to rank Michigan ahead of Michigan State, even though Michigan State won on the field. And then, like, in the end, it's like the playoff committee be like, we told you Michigan was a lot better. But it's because Michigan State was so tough and found ways to win 
and Kenneth Walker III had an unbelievable five-touchdown game against Michigan, that they went 10-2 and is an unbelievable credit to Mel Tucker. He doesn't need credit from us, though. We got a $100 million contract extension. But what a season for that team, and it mattered. Because there's one thing to go 10-2, and oh, whatever. But, like, they were – their fans got to be part of the real playoff discussion for 10 full weeks until they got their doors blown off by Mich- by Ohio State. But that was a really nice, unexpected ride for that fan base. So the Spartans are my number four. Yep, they were they were also on my list as well. Uh, that is that is the most Big Ten thing that I can imagine giving out hundred million dollar contracts and not wanting to hurt Mel Tucker's feelings at the same time. That uh, that we just want to make sure that everybody's being nice, everybody's having fun, everybody's playing uh, well with each other. You know, uh, yeah, the Midwest seems like a fascinating place. Uh, the Big Ten has an official announcement to make. In the voting for which team will try the hardest this year, it's a 14-way tie for first. (laughs) So embarrassing. All right. Michigan State was fourth. My number three is a tweak of the Oregon discussion. Because it's one of those things. Is Oregon disappointing? Or is the fact that Oregon found a way without Kayvon Thibodeau on the road to beat Ohio State a miracle? Because by the end of the year, we saw what Oregon was. So are you dinging them for not living up to week two? Or are you saying the team that lost 76 to 17 combined to Utah in two of the last three weekends of the regular season? Was that the real Oregon? And oh my God, how did they beat Ohio State? So this is an Oregon slash Joe Moorhead. Joe Moorhead, I, I I really want to go to Akron and talk to him. He's the offense, he's the offensive coordinator at Penn State, beats Ohio State, gets the Mississippi State head job, not a cultural fit, leaves there, offensive coordinator at Oregon, beats Ohio State. And he leaves to be the head coach at Akron, which is arguably the worst power, the worst team in major college football of 130 teams. The worst program, arguably. Why? Like he could get to be the head coach there instead of going to be a power five offensive coordinator to rework himself back up the ladder to be a head coach again, there must be something about what he wants for his life, for the big picture stuff going on with him, the challenge at Akron, whatever. He does have some connections to Akron. I'm fascinated by it. It's an unbelievable hire for Akron. I can't believe they got him. So it is a surprise, a pleasant surprise to me that Anthony Brown as a quarterback Joe Moorhead as a play caller and CJ Verdell as a running back who then got hurt and missed the rest of the season ran for 170 against Ohio state that they managed to do that. And the result was Oregon was a fundamental part of the playoff discussion for a long time this year when it turns out they never really should have been there. And it was a little bit smoke and mirrors. And I'm not giving the credit to Mario Cristobal because I think he had Miami on his mind. But that offense found a way. Noah Sewell playing defense, great linebacker against Ohio State. A couple guys, when the the chips were down in Columbus, found a way to make this a relevant, very relevant Oregon season when it very easily didn't have to be. Yeah, just to just to touch on the Moorhead thing for a second. I mean, I'm I'm curious for sure if uh sort of his health scare this year maybe played into it, right? Like maybe he just wants to to get to a position where he can be in a place. Uh he's from Pittsburgh originally, Akron obviously not super far down the road. Uh and and I mean, if you look at I mean, Terry Bowden was there for 7 years and finished above 500 once. Like, you know, maybe he's just like 
I like Akron. They're going to pay me a decent amount of money and I can just kind of, I, I mean, he was the, the former head coach at Fordham. Maybe he just enjoyed being sort of a, a mid-major type head coach. Now, Akron is, I think, a much tougher job in its own world than Fordham is, right? Fordham's a, a pretty good FCS program. But, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's just what he wants from his life, like we were saying. I, I will say, I I went into it being like, because obviously you've seen Joe Moorhead, right? He's got like the big, white, bushy beard, all that sort of stuff. I was like, okay, maybe maybe this is like a little bit of a retirement gig for him as he kind of transitions out a little bit. You know how old Joe Moorhead is? How old? 48. Really? That's how old I am. I'm ready to retire. Can I retire? <laughs> that People age in mysterious ways sometimes. And Joe Moorhead looks like a very old man and he's 48 years old. So I guess he's not in a retirement gig. But I do think that that there's some uh, some hope for him that maybe this is a long-term type thing where he can have his Frank Solich ride, for example. Um, That's exactly the guy I was going to bring up. Frank's yeah, in Ohio. Yeah. No, I mean, great life, right? <laughs> great life down the stretch there. So, um, but, but back to Oregon. I think the thing that's disappointing is that Oregon in 2019 was a borderline playoff caliber team with Justin Herberts. Oregon in 2020 takes a little bit of a step back. It's a little bit of a rebuilding gear, but you have a sophomore cave on Thibodeau. Um, you know, you have Tyler Shuck who looks like he has a little something at quarterback. Um, and they win the Pac 12 in a year where they really shouldn't have. And so you kind of feel like it was a setup year. Right. You kind of feel like that was a setup year where maybe you weren't as good as you thought or you weren't all that good. But like you still managed to find a way to win the Pac-12. Now, it took some weirdness with COVID and all that to, to make that happen. But they won the Pac-12. And so I think in 2021, I agree that maybe they were a little ahead of schedule. I agree that we probably got a little overhyped on them because they went on the road and beat Ohio State, a team that we can certainly have arguments about their overall quality as well. But um I think for the Pac-12 to feel like they had a team that had not just a path to the playoff, but like a red carpet to the playoff. They just had to get by Utah. That's all they had to do. And they would have been the first Pac-12 team since 2016 Washington in the college football playoff. I mean, it, it sets the whole conference back, right? Now, now they get the flip side of that because Lincoln Riley's coming in and I think he'll have USC in the playoff. They're going to get a new coach at Oregon, maybe a better, like we mentioned, X and O's coach. But Oregon was in a culmination year, too, in a lot of ways. Kayvon Thibodeau's gone. He's he's the, one of the best players in the history of the program. This was the year, and you had it right there. You were ahead of schedule, and you blew it. It was the year, but also we ranked the quarterbacks for all the playoff contenders in the preseason, and Anthony Brown for Oregon was at the bottom of our list. That That's on them. That's on Mario Cristobal. No, it is on them, but but I agree. But they thought they had it maybe in, in Shuck, who transfers – sort of maybe because of Anthony Brown, but they just, they have a freshman who wasn't quite ready. Like they were a little, sometimes your team and your quarterback development is a year off. And I feel like that's what happened here a little bit, but I do think, I mean, it's just how you view Oregon. Did they overachieve or underachieve? And I think there is an argument both ways. I think most people would view it the way you are, but I think if you listen to me long enough, I'm very persuasive. Number two, the fighting. Well, I don't have to say fighting. Because you have when you have demon as the adjective in your nickname, you don't have to add fighting. It's not like the uh, the uh, the the warm and sensitive demon deacons. They are by definition fighting. They're demons. That Wake Forest, that Wake Forest was anywhere within sniffing distance because there was we'd made jokes about what you would name your Wake Forest podcast. There was the world of like, okay, well, if everything falls apart. 
And Wake Forest is an undefeated ACC champ. Like, are they in? <laughs> it didn't get very far down the line, but for Wake Forest, that that their name was said on this podcast, the defining podcast about the college football playoff. Hang a banner on that. Mention nine times on the college football playoff slash survivor show. We'll make that banner. Shahan <laughs> said our name. 2021 <laughs> Wake Forest Demon Deacons. They're my number two that they got to experience part of this playoff journey this year, Shahan. Yeah, I, I actually had uh, a combined one. I had I had both Wake Forest and also Kenny Pickett. So basically just ACC quarterbacks. I, I could have never seen this coming. We mentioned it a little bit on the on the disappointment side, but Kenny Pickett, Sam Hartman, Devin Lear at NC State, Brendan Armstrong at Virginia, Tyler Van Dyke at Miami, Sam Howell at North Carolina, Malik Cunningham at Louisville. Uh, you know, Jeff Sims had some moments. Like, they had a great collection of quarterbacks this year in the ACC, something that we've never really seen before. And because of that, we were in a position where Wake Forest, who hasn't won a conference championship in, since 2006, uh, led by Sam Hartman, faced off against Pitt, a team that has never won an ACC championship since they joined the league, or at least an outright ACC championship is the phrasing, um, behind Kenny Pickett, a Heisman finalist. Who would have thought, right? Who, who would have thought that the ACC would be the conference of quarterbacks this year? But they really were. I mean, I know that, I know that when Clemson lost and once they didn't have a top 10 team, a lot of people probably tuned out of the ACC. Go back and watch some of those games, man. Like, like Kenny Pickett is the real deal. Sam Hartman is the real deal. These are special quarterbacks. These are special offenses. Um, again, you know what? They, they didn't, uh, at the end of the year because of some really dumb stuff, honestly, have a chance to, to be in the college football playoff conversation down the stretch. These were two really good teams and they were really fun teams to watch. So, um, I, I give them a lot of credit for both of them coming out of nowhere, really, to be in this conversation. And then my number one is Michigan. Yeah. That that you had mentioned this before. And I think there is a debate happening now in the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry of, is this a one-year thing? Is this a changing of the guard? And I think the answer, as always, is probably somewhere in between. I think if you're doing tiers, and I love doing tiers in college football, Ohio State is still in the top tier Unless Bama's in a tier by itself, and it's like, well, there's the Bama tier, then there's the legitimate people who have a chance to challenge Bama tier. So Ohio State's in that, either in one or two. I do think Michigan doing this, I think Michigan is now and will stay in the near future in that next tier, right below the Ohio State tier. They're not equal to Ohio State yet as a program. Ohio State recruits better, but they're right there. I think there's not going to be any doubt about that. They're going to lose Aiden Hutchinson, but they do have talent. They've always been the second best recruiting team in the Big Ten. They just didn't win big games. That they showed patience, that they didn't pull the trigger on Harbaugh too early, that they revamped their staff in a really smart way, that they were extremely well coached. They didn't make mistakes. They managed the Cade McNamara, J.J. McCarthy quarterback situation in a way that maybe didn't make sense to a lot of us as we watched it unfold. But in the end, I think they almost did it in an ideal way. Multiple running backs, just a really good football program that I think established some stuff. So I think it's Michigan number one, not just for what they did in this year, but what this year will do for them going forward. And it's not that they have to be equal to Ohio State, but I think they are at the level now of they're legit 
challenger to Ohio State. And if they can at the very least be what Auburn has been to Alabama, like, hey, man, we're right there. We're not scared of you. We're almost as good as you. And we're going to it's not going to be a thing. We're going to beat us 10 years in a row. And I think they could even be more than that, because I think Michigan can recruit talent consistently at a higher level than Auburn. I think this is a game changing year for Michigan. They deserve a lot of credit for it. And I think they have a chance to win it all. I'm not saying I would pick them, but they're a legit, they're a legit playoff team and nobody should doubt them. Yeah. And I will quickly mention that number two with Cincinnati. I think the arguments for them being a surprise and, and also just the excitement of them getting into the field, I think is really as much a part of the pleasant surprise, but, but let's focus on Michigan. Um, I think, did you ever see the, the, the first Avengers, like, uh, the, the first half of Endgame or I, I don't remember what that one was called. Infinity War. Did you ever see Infinity War? Is, uh, Spider-Man in that one? I, he is. He is actually in that one, but, uh, but is the Hulk, I, the Hulk I, in that one. <laughs> all of them are in that one. That's the idea of the Avengers, but, uh, Thanos, the giant villain has a line in that movie where he goes, I am inevitable. Right. That basically, mm. you can't stop me. I'm inevitable. I think that's something that we learned this year is that Nick Saban is inevitable. Not everybody else is inevitable. Not everybody else is Alabama. Right. I mean, Ohio State, like you mentioned, clearly the class of the Big Ten. I made the arguments a while back that uh, that they superseded the Big Ten. Well, thank goodness. Michigan told me that I'm wrong. I said that with Oklahoma about the Big 12. Well, Baylor and Oklahoma State proved to me that I'm wrong. Uh, Clemson, you've kind of felt like they've uh, exceeded the ACC. They're not Alabama, right? Alabama is in a class of its own when it comes to that. And I think that's really exciting. And the other thing that I'll mention about this, too, that I think is just a really good thing for the sports is that out of the 14 coaches in the Big 10, 10 have been there since 2017 or longer in the SEC. 11 of the 14 programs have made a coaching change since 2019. This is the playoff of continuity. The most recent hired coach is Luke Fickle back in 2017. Everybody else has been there for a while. And you have this situation with Jim Harbaugh, who easily could have been fired last year. Easily, easily. They had a miserable year. If he coached at Texas, he would have been fired. Yes. But they say, you know what? Let's make a more team-friendly contract, which I think is a good thing. I think that more contracts should be team-friendly, to be quite honest. Let's redo this. Let's make it make sense. We're going to give you another shot. Obviously, this is your dream job. I'm not saying that should play any part in it, but this is a place where you want it to be. You're a big deal to us. And prove it. Prove to us that you can keep building. And their gamble paid off in an incredible way. And, it, and I, th- I think that this is the way that college football should be, right? I don't think that it's a good thing for coaches to be out for after two or three years and, and have all this inconsistency and have co- a constant staff turnover. I think that this is a win for college football that these continuity-type coaches are, have gotten over the top. And to speak specifically about Michigan, I mean, I was curious what they could do to to fundamentally change their position because they've been a good defense for many years. That's not what changed, right? But they've just become more dynamic in what they do on the offensive side of the ball. Now, I, I will be curious. They have to go up and play against Georgia now, the best rush defense in the history of college football. And if they win, they're rewarded with either Alabama or Cincinnati. So it's not going to be easy. I mean, cause, cause something that I think we see sometimes too is we have teams that are built to win the conference. I actually think that that's been an issue with Oklahoma to some extent that they're built to win the big 12. Uh, but they're not built to beat Bama. They're not built 
to beat Ohio State. They're not built to beat these national teams. Um, you know, Ohio State, we kind of go the opposite direction sometimes where they're built to beat Bama and not the Big Ten. So I'm curious to see now heading into the college football playoff with Michigan, are they built to also compete with those teams? I've had a lot of thoughts about that kind of thinking. I think it's really smart that this year, Ohio State was probably more designed to beat Bama or Clemson or Georgia than it was to beat Michigan. And is that a, is that wrong? Because if your goals are above just conference stuff and you figure like, well, we'll, we'll figure out a way to win in the conference and figure out a way usually means have more talent. But the plan is going to be aimed at the highest goal. You know, I, I don't think that's a bad way of thinking, but some component of that helped trip them up against Michigan. And now Michigan has to see, hey, this dynamic run game with a great defensive player, can you take that on a national stage? It was enough to beat Ohio State. Can you take it on a national stage? I think maybe yes, but I also think maybe yes because like Trevor Lawrence and Joe Burrow and Kyler Murray aren't in this playoff, right? That even as good as Bryce Young is, if they have to play Bryce Young, this is not the best talent with the most experience at quarterback. So Michigan might be hitting a window, but I do think what will be the ramifications of what happened this year that extend beyond this year? In some ways, this was a one-year blip of chaos, but I think there are some other things that will remain. And I do think, I think James Franklin and Penn State might look at Michigan and say, let's be that. Has Penn State gotten to exactly where they want to be under James Franklin? No. Have they been close? Have they been good? Yes. Were they on the edge maybe of, of breaking up? Maybe, but they stuck together. And now can you have a Michigan kind of thing happen with James Franklin and Penn State? What other programs can learn from that and say, we stuck it out and our breakthrough year was year seven? Right. It didn't happen in year year two or four. There are lessons to be learned. What carries over? We've got a whole offseason to do that. For now, we'll continue to focus on the playoff. Those are our surprises and disappointments. Thanks for being part of that. Again, the Tuesday show is for Apple Podcast subscribers. That's $2.99 a month. The Wednesday shows are free. Tech subscribers, you get the vote in surveys, 817-442-6789 to sign up for that. You send a text to that number. Read Shahan at CBS Sports. Listen to the College Football Survivor Show. For Shahan Jeharaja, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.